You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Sorry, I have got a glass of wine, my winking owl wine from Aldino's. It's like a new boutique grocery store in my neighborhood. Mm. <laughs> I think I've I think I've heard of it from it by its casual name, Aldi. Mm-hmm. Um, it's German, owl. actually. So <laughs> I have this little European grocery store in my neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, it is. No sure. knocking on Ald- Aldi because they got good prices there. They do. Yes, their lucky charms are called like rain- good luck stars, but <laughs> it everyone needs the same. Everyone needs a good luck star in their life. It all comes from the same place. I actually love um, generic versions of brand name stuff and aldi's is a good place to go if you like that like mm-hmm. fruit loops it's like circle o's or something <laughs> yeah. like you know <laughs> yeah exactly um my one bone to pick though i think with uh generics are the trader joe's oreos what are they called like I trader think called trader, or... trader joe's but the o is really big i don't know maybe i'm butchering butchering that but i agree those there's something off with those they don't taste good they're weird. Okay, we had a an episode in our office where we were no longer allowed to have Oreos in the office as like a snack because apparently someone read that they caused cancer and, you know, the whole office was like going to shut down because of Oreos causing cancer. And I was like, well, everything causes cancer. But anyway, so no longer are we allowed to have Oreos in the office, but we are allowed to have Trader O's or Trader Joe's. And I'm just it's like, Trader this, O's. that's what it is. This is blasphemy, first of all. Second of all, if you're not willing to get a little cancer to eat an Oreo, Every day of your life? Well, I actually think Oreos use a lot of palm oil. Yeah. Which is ruining rainforest for the orangutans and It is true. They aren't the only ones. I could be talking out of my ass. I have no idea. But I know it's bad. Everything's bad. And on that note... Everything is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to our podcast. Uh, This is Two Girls, One Crossword. I'm Grace Topenka. And I'm Chelsea Rowan. You're listening to your favorite weekly crossword. 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 Or shit. Okay. You got it. You got this. Okay. Your favorite weekly podword crosscast. She's back. I'm here. Friends and enemies. <laughs> you cannot new, stop me. That's the new gender neutral, ladies and gentlemen. Friends and enemies. I love that. Moving forward. Perfect. Mm-hmm. I do like ladies and germs. That always makes me laugh a little bit. <laughs> Gents are germs if we get right down to the to the root of it. To the science behind it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. Well. Wow. Okay. So, so another week in paradise. You're here again. I'm here again, I guess. What should we do? I don't know. We could go over our poll from last week, Polapalooza. Polapalooza. Okay. Let's do Polapalooza. We asked our Twitter followers, what's your favorite origami shape? Mm. Potential answers were crane butterfly jumping frog and flower and uh, a 65 percent landslide win for crane of course everyone saw that coming crane is like the golden child of it is origami um second place at 18 percent, we had the jumping frog which is fun because it's interactive it's interactive and that's like one of the most fun ones to learn as a kid because it like literally does jump when i learned the mm-hmm. jumping frog the first time i was like science i'm a genius i can make paper fly Paper can be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, 12% in third place, we had butterfly, and then 5% flower. Okay. Fine. Well, uh, but we're all winners here. Okay. 
I do have to say that I spent a good portion of this past week debating whether or not I was going to buy origami paper to start uh, doing the Zenbazuru, which is, you know, if you listened last week, it's the folding of a thousand paper cranes. It's something that I would absolutely start and never finish. I did buy a beautiful miniature house project at the beginning of quarantine. I think I opened it twice. I painted some wood shelves and then I painted some flower pots. And that's about it. And I kid you not, there's like 300 pieces that I have to like assemble and put together. And I had to do some deep internal looking to decide whether or not this origami undertaking was worth it. I feel like it'd be worth it if I followed through. Yeah. Is there like a half marathon type situation? <laughs> right? like what's, cranes? The, what's the word for 500 cranes? Anybody know? That might be better. It actually could be like a fun like thing to do with your friends you know like if if i had a hundred friends i'd get them all to do like 10 is this the math 10 cranes each <laughs> yeah good luck finding a hundred people who'd be willing to do that i i can't do anything like that because i don't let myself enjoy that type of stuff <laughs> like i have a hard time letting myself enjoy doing something just for the sake of doing it although i guess in this case you get a really nice end product so that would um Imagine hanging that in your house or giving it to, like, someone you really care about. I'm not giving it to anyone. You're not a even going to send it to the, the Children's Peace Monument in Hiroshima, Grace? Okay. Well, not the thousand one. I would make a couple. I'd probably get pretty good at making cranes at that point. Right. At that point, you could just make cranes in your sleep. You could run a factory, a crane factory. No one asked for that. <laughs> no one wants that from me. <laughs> oh, hashtag capitalism. Okay, let's move on because i could talk about my crafts uptakes and never finish through projects the rest of the night which i don't think <laughs> our listeners have signed up for that i think they've signed up to hear some hits and some shits what do you think i think you're right all right oh actually i have a corrections corner okay a very minor corrections corner so i believe in the last episode i mentioned that for the tokyo the 2020 tokyo olympics they are promoting Peace Orizoru, which is the Peace Paper Cranes, as part of the games. And I think I said that you can send your cranes into the Tokyo Olympics. That is false. What you can actually do is you can go onto the 2020 Tokyo Olympics Peace Orizoru page and download a specific piece uh, pattern for your origami paper, which you can then print out and fold into a crane and then you can take pictures and tag them you know hashtag them put them on instagram that kind of thing uh if you are interested in folding cranes and sending them somewhere we posted on our instagram the link where you can actually send your paper cranes to the children's peace monument in hiroshima um they ex like they have a very specific page in english on the hiroshima like the japan's website explaining how you can send your cranes internationally and they accept them. They keep a whole log of everybody that's ever sent cranes. It's really cool, really efficient. Definitely check it out. And, like, I kind of was like, maybe I would do, like, a couple cranes and send them. I think that could actually be kind of nice. But if anybody yeah. out there folds cranes and sends them or just folds them and takes pictures, tag us because that would be fun to see. Yes, please. If, if we have any listeners out there who do origami, let us know. Send us pictures. Please. We'd love to see it. Yes. Shall we get into the hits and shits now? Um, I guess we could. All right. Do you want me to start us off or do you want to start us off? 
I can start us off. Okay. I enjoyed the Sunday Waypo, as always, by Evan Bernholz. Always. Sunday the 13th, uh, June 13th. Uh, there was a lot of ones that I liked, but um, a couple ones that stood out. 126 across. Listen up, I'm a crow. This call. <laughs> there's another one that was similar. And then uh, this one just made me laugh and was nostalgic. 128 across. Critter, such as a jub-jub whom one can care for using virtual cash. Yeah. I have half a mind to start playing Neopets again. That was Can you play? I think you can. I think they actually have like console versions of the game or you can play it on like not your Switch, but you used to be able to play it on like the the PSP, like the PlayStation Portable. Mm-hmm. Um my brothers played it much longer than I did, but I always played it online, like when it was only online. Oh my Same. god, some of those it games take, were like- so much fun. 10 years for <laughs> your new pet to load and you'd be like so excited waiting to see what it would be i know and name it amazing uh i liked the friday june 11th new york times by matthew stock uh i learned something five across yes. first country to discover water on the moon and the answer was india and that was in 2008 very cool um that was nice maybe they were the first country on the moon oh oh if you yeah. listen to Grace's People moon landing I'm episode. Really <laughs> and I'm pretty sure India probably discovered water with a robot, not a person. Probably. I actually didn't understand anything. I tried to read about this more in depth so I could give our listeners more information about this water discovery. They didn't actually find like lakes. You know, obviously, we would know if there were, like, lakes or puddles or even whatever on the moon. But it's just, like, water molecules, it seems like. But after that, after they were like, it's not lakes, it's water molecules. And they went into the science explanation. I was like, you lost me. I got I to gotta, I gotta go back to my origami, actually. So There's a reason we don't work at NASA. <clears throat> it's true. Um, another clue from that puzzle that I loved, I had to take a picture of it and send it to Grace immediately, was 34 across. Sorbet for international hip-hop star, star Pitbull. And the answer is Mr. Worldwide. And the fact that Mr. Worldwide showed up in the New York Times crossword, I don't know, but it, like, literally made my entire week. Uh, especially because I think Pitbull, there's a Pitbull sound trending on TikTok. And so mm-hmm. I feel like my life just, like, came full circle. And it was just, it was like a match made in heaven. Mr. Worldwide, a.k.a. Mr. 305, which yeah. is the Miami area code. It's true. Which is where uh, I'm from, so Pipple and I have a lot in, in common. Mm-hmm. He's been there. He's done that, so don't worry. Um, also from that puzzle was 32 Down, Blossoms of Snow, quote, in song. And the answer was Edelweiss. And I kid you not, I sung the song for the rest of the day in varying character voices because I love Sound of Music so much. Grace and I both do. So it's nice to see that. A lot of people think Edelweiss is the national anthem of Austria. <laughs> <laughs> they really do. It is really not. <laughs> oh, gotta love it. Well, I learned something too from this puzzle. Eleven down. Many a farmers market attendee. It was Ooh. locavore. Yes. I never heard that term before, but it's someone who who only eats local. Must be nice. Um, actually, I would love that to be my life, but it can be pricey. Yeah. Uh, once you're rich, then you can do that. Once you're rich, then you can eat healthy and you can have a well-balanced diet and shop locally and help local businesses. Until then, you must become a... Never mind. I'm not getting into it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't have the time. <laughs> we don't have the time. What else do you got for me? 
Um, I liked the Saturday, June 12th New York Times by Brooke Husick and Brian Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, the 28 down, first and last name of Rihanna. Yes. Robin Fenty. Yes. I just love that her full name made it into the crossword. And I always forget that Fenty is her last name. I know that's obviously the name of her um, brand. Right. But I agree. I also, I had Robin filled in and I could not remember her last name. And then, of course, as soon as I filled Fenty in, I was like, you're an idiot. You knew this. You had the same reaction when you realized her last name was Fenty because when she named her brand Fenty, I was like, that's kind of weird. Like, isn't there already a Fenty fashion brand? Of course there is, but Robin Fendi. Fenty. Right. It's different. So it's different. Uh, did you do this Sunday, June 13th, New York Times by Stephen McCarthy? I didn't. The theme was great. I think you would have liked it. Uh, the puzzle was called Maple Leaf. The grid sort of looked like a maple leaf, uh, and you can probably guess, but this was Canadian-themed, okay? Canada. Mm. The revealer was 76 across. Like all the answers with pairs of circled letters, punnily. So all the circled letters in the puzzle were the letters E-H. I was like, okay. But E-H in Canada is A. You know, the Canadians mm-hmm. are always made fun of for saying A. Right. And so the answer to 76 across the revealer was made in Canada. But instead of made being spelled M-A-D-E, it was spelled M-E-H-D-E, like made aid in Canada. Very cute. And of course, all the themed answers were related to Canada. So 16 down, seasonal destination near Quebec City, winter ice hotel, or let's see. And there's an E-H in there at the end of ice and beginning of hotel. Mm-hmm. A two-player game invented in Toronto, table hockey, that was 10 down. And then nine down, program introduced by the Trudeau government in 1984, free health care. You know, and there was more than that, but they were mm-hmm. all Canadian themed and they all had EH in the answers and it was all made aid in Canada. Very nice. Very fun. Shout out to Canadians. We loved, we love the Canadians, the Canadians. We really do. I think we have some Canadian listeners, according to our metrics. So, According to the numbers, the numbers never lie. They never lie. Hello, from your neighbors to the south. <laughs> We're actually not that far from, I mean, Chicago's not that far from Canada. Can, I, can, we, can we take a boat to Canada from here, technically? Or is, does that just take us up to Michigan? I think that takes us to Michigan. But we could easily drive from, Mich- you know, across the border there. Yes. Okay. We'll see you in Canada. Next week, recording from... (laughs) Uh, Did you do the Wednesday, June 16th? Oh, yes, you you did this because you did it with me. We did this digitally. If you like doing crosswords, you know, with other people, you can do partner mode on the New York Times. Or sorry, not the New York Times, not the New York Times, the New Yorker. You can also Mm -hmm. do a partner mode on the Washington Post. That's a fun one to do as well. Partner Um, mode. Partner um but (laughs) the 16th on the new yorker was by eric agard the 19 across really got me reflective material and the answer was memoirs of course Mm -hmm. i was thinking of a tactile material that was reflective not this incredible wordplay thanks eric um and then 25 down from that puzzle was people who save a lot of time picking outfits and the answer was nudists loved that funny clue uh, Grace and I were joking about, we thought it was probably like owner of a capsule wardrobe, which I still have not achieved 
But I don't think I'm going to, you know, I used to be really into capsule wardrobes. I don't think I'm into capsule wardrobes anymore. Agreed. I feel like I'm more of like a maximalist now, but I still don't want to have too many clothes because that overwhelms me. But right. I'm into color now. I know, I right? I'm able to see from what I'm wearing now, but. I know. <laughs> the me that exists in my mind that I want to be wears a lot of color. Exactly. Lots of prints, very bold statement pieces, unafraid, just but taking the world by storm in large <laughs> shoes. The actual me just wears socks with my Crocs and <laughs> Patagonia shorts <laughs> and like a t-shirt. I haven't had so, my hair down in years. Uh, it's been years. What else do you got? Well, what about the uh, Tuesday New York Times? There was some Drama. discussion about this by yes. Owen Travis. The yeah. main point of contention was that the theme of the crossword was Harry Potter. Um Deathly Hollows was like the revealer answer, and it was the stone, cloak, and wand were the second halves of the other answers. And obviously, we all know J.K. Rowling is problematic. Um, it it's also Pride Month. So probably not the best time to do this theme. Should right. we ever do a J.K. Rowling theme? I mean, I guess let's, we're trying to get Coco Chanel out. Should we get J.K. Rowling out? I feel like right. I'm kind of a hypocrite, though, because I do still enjoy some Harry Potter stuff. Like, I would go to Harry Potter World. Right. And do stuff like that. Unfortunately, that. unfortunately for Grace and I, and many people in our age bracket, and, you know, people outside of that as well, but specifically millennials, a lot of us grew up with Harry Potter, um, went through the whole Harry Potter craze phase, the whole thing. Um, for a lot of us, it defined our childhood. It defined, you know, our interests, whatever, you know. Um, and to find out that the creator has some extremely problematic beliefs is really difficult to kind of reconcile with, I think. Um, especially like in books that really promote this idea of accepting acceptance of all types of people and this ability to like redefine, like define your own identity. Um, to see that p the person who wrote those words that, you know, for me, they definitely defined me hugely as a teenager kind of starting starting to espouse these ideas that I'm very against, uh, it's troubling. Um, and the question is, like, can you divorce the art from the artist? And in some ways, I think you can. I don't think it's a problem for us to like Harry Potter. It was extremely important and formative in our youth. But it's also, it would be ignorant for us to sit back and ignore what the creator says on a very public platform Somebody who mm -hmm. has like a very public way of expressing opinions that could physically harm and endanger a huge population of people should be looked at critically. That person should yes. be. But if we keep, continue to buy Harry Potter stuff, like going to Harry Potter World or the pottery PB teen Harry Potter collection, we're continuing to platform this person. Unfortunately, yeah. It's really sad. I'm just a bad person. I don't know. <clears throat> but I will say, okay, the end of Harry Potter, they all just marry someone they met in middle school. Like, honestly, grow up. That part is, like, the worst for me. Sure. <laughs> no, if that's for... not the worst. There are much, <laughs> many more problematic things in the book. But that's one yeah. thing that I always thought was cheesy from the get-go. It is like, extremely cheesy. Can they have a life? If you're and interested, Harry turns into like a police. We go whatever. We can't get into Harry Potter. No, discourse, we can't. But if you're interested in looking more critically at Harry Potter, I would recommend checking out the Witch Please podcast. Two professors from Canada actually 
close read the Harry Potter books. They both love Harry Potter, but they have the similar kind of feelings towards the author. Um, and they read this book critically and really shed light on things that I never looked at the books from these different lenses. And it's mm-hmm. so important. It helped me reform my opinion of Harry Potter. There was a point in time where I was like, I still love Harry Potter. Harry Potter's one of my favorite books. Now I, I feel like I can't even say that after listening to this podcast. It has, I can recognize that it had an important role in my life, but I have a very difficult time engaging with that content anymore, especially after listening to this podcast. Would recommend it. Um, and yeah, if we would love to hear what our listeners have to say. <laughs> But oh, I don't gosh. think we... open the floodgates. I mean, <laughs> whether or not we respond to you is entirely our prerogative, but you're more than welcome to write to us. <laughs> yes. Um, that's all I have for this week. Well, I just want to give a quick shout out on the um, which one is this? Oh, the Monday New York Times. Do we talk about that already? I don't know if we did. Oh, no, I don't think we did. Andrea Carla Michaels and Doug Peterson. Mm-hmm. I just thought 38 Down Nintendo controllers, Wii Motes. Nice. We with two eyes, that's such good crossword ease, and I feel like people should use it more, and I just think that's a cute word. It's really cute. Um, we love wheeze in this house. I don't. I feel like wheeze had their time. They were a thing. And mm. When I was in high school, that was like the thing to do at someone's house. But right. It's like well, I would I never guess... play a wee by myself, you know? True. I. It's like a party thing. I think wheeze can be fun, like still like a, like a old school wee with the Wiimotes, like Mario Kart at a party is fun um but you can do them on the switch now so let's all just transition to the switch all right heard it here first so should we get into our <laughs> topic then and flip the coin i think we should flip that we've the coin. covered that yes absolutely okay all right my friends i'm flipping the coin now <gasps> it's heads that's you that's me i'm so excited My topic comes from the Friday, June 11th New Yorker by Caitlin Reed. Five down. Game people bend over backwards for. And the answer, limbo. Ooh. Ooh. I had a difficult time kind of picking my topic this week. I was thinking about doing famous dances. There's a couple, like three famous dances showed up in the various puzzles I did. I think it was like the Watusi Disco and Limbo. And mm-hmm. I was going to do like a more general famous dances topic. And then I looked into Limbo first. And I was like, actually, let's just do Limbo. Let's so, do it, baby. How low can you go? How right? low? Okay, I can't get very low. I don't have good knees. You need good knees to do Limbo professionally. I haven't Limboed in years. In I years. Last time I, someone asked me to Limbo. Let's break out the Limbo pole tonight. Maybe at Hannah's birthday this weekend, we'll make everyone limbo. (laughs) (laughs) We should text her. Do you have a broom? Okay. I feel like she does. Everyone's got a broom, right? I guess. Okay. We'll let you know if we limbo this weekend. Anyway. So, talking about limbo this week. Uh, Limbo, as it is known today is a popular party game where people try to bend beneath a vertical bar known as the limbo bar, the limbo stick. Uh, And your backs must be facing the floor without touching the bar or falling over. Um, And limbo as a game of like a, as a game and a form of entertainment originated in the Caribbeans. And a lot of people attribute limbo to Trinidad specifically. 
No idea. Very interesting. Where does the word limbo come from? According to both Merriam-Webster and Dictionary.com, the word limbo comes from the Jamaican English word limba, meaning to bend, and it then morphed into the word limbo in Trinidad and Barbados. I had no idea this was, like, originated in the uh, Caribbeans, so. No, me neither. Does that have anything to do with the limbo, like, you know, between heaven and earth? So, sort of, uh, but not, but sort of. Let's, okay. We can, I can pull where I can see similarities, but nobody in my research kind of said, this is like the place between heaven and earth or heaven and hell or whatever. But as you'll see when I talk about this, you can see where you can kind of pull that idea or like kind of make the leap. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's, let's get into it. First and foremost, the most important part, how do you play limbo? If you're to like go to a party today, how do you play limbo? What are the rules? First of all, it's a party game, right? So it's got to be fun. The rules have to be simple. Mm-hmm. Usually there is a horizontal bar. Like I said, it's known as the limbo bar, the limbo stick, and it is supported by two vertical bars or stands. Or if you don't have a limbo set, because not many people do, you can have two people act as your limbo bar holders, um, but it will be less accurate. If you were to do limbo professionally, you actually have to have the legitimate limbo stands. Mm -hmm. Okay. So everybody at the party lines up and goes under the bar, but you must go under with your back to the floor, bending backwards. No part of the body can touch the bar, and no part of the body aside from the feet can touch the ground. This rule I didn't know about, maybe because I just don't play limbo often enough, but apparently you cannot turn your head or neck to the side when you're going under the bar. Like, your nose. I feel like a lot of people do that. They do. And so next time, I will be the limbo killjoy. Not on my watch. People aren't going to be cheating. (laughs) Beep, beep, beep. Back up, buddy. Not going to happen. I will not lose to a cheater. Okay. Uh, And yeah, so then whoever knocks the bar off or falls over is eliminated. And once everybody passes under the bar, the bar is lowered slightly. And the contest continues. The last person standing or bending (laughs) wins. (laughs) I'm actually really funny. Uh, So anyway, that's the rules of limbo. Let's get into the origins, okay? okay? All of my research pointed me to the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. The Republic of Trinidad and Tobago is a is the southernmost island nation in the Caribbeans, uh, and they're known for their African and Indian cultures. Uh, first of all, their population, uh, the two largest ethnic groups uh, in their nation is Indian and African. Indian is 37% and African is 36 Two largest ethnic groups, so really influences the culture. You can see this in the famous Carnival, Diwali, and Jose celebrations on the islands. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Trinidad and Tobago are recognized as the birthplace of not only limbo, but also the steel pan, which is that instrument. And music styles such as calypso, soca, rapso, parang, chutney, and chutney soca. Those are all famous types of music. And according to the official Carnival Twitter of Trinidad and Tobago, limbo is the official dance of the uh, country. Hmm. Very cool. Is it Tobago or Tobago? Oh, well, of course, I was pronouncing it wrong. Thank you, Grace. It is Trinidad and Tobago. Please forgive me. I am useless. So, yeah, according to the official Carnival Twitter of Trinidad and Tobago, limbo is the official dance of the country. Very nice. Do we have an official dance in the United States? I don't know if we do. 
Mm, the grind line. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, if you had to guess, what would it be? Uh, the, the 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 electric slide, honestly, probably. Oh, now I've got to look it up. What is the official dance? What is the national dance of the United States? Swing. No national dance. Okay. Because <laughs> we're boring. But it says no national dance. Swing and square dancing are the unofficial national dances. All right. Some other big dances are the hoop dance, grass dance, jingle dance, fancy dance, and tribal dance. Cool. Whatever. I don't do any of those, so. Uh, me neither. Okay. Back to Limbo. On that same carnival twitter account they describe or they say that limbo originated from the african descendants on the island as a funeral wake ritual of the shango devotees in trinidad so shango is the god is a god in the yoruba religion which is a traditional religion of the yoruba people whose homeland is in the present day southwestern nigeria nigeria mm-hmm. so Limbo is part of this funeral, you know, wake procession dedicated to the Shango god. Uh, The sacred funeral dance is when participants would bend backwards at the waist under a horizontal bamboo pole while people would sing and drum around them. The movement under the bar is supposed to enact a suspension between the two worlds, living and dying. Yep. And represent our transition into death. Wow, I never really thought that the two words would, that the like the that limbo that I'm thinking of, then the limbo dance would be connected. But right, neither did I. That so interesting. Um, Another source suggested that the limbo dance may actually be related to the African legba dance, and so legba or papa legba is an ancestral spirit in Haitian voodoo. If you're interested in learning more about voodoo, you can tune into episode 16, Culture Shock. so Legba serves as the intermediary between the spirits and humanity. So again, this kind of like intermediary spirit. And there's a dance that you perform for Papa Legba that is supposed to be similar to the dance, the Limba or the Limbo dance. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But then we're going to take a little bit of an about face here. In a book called In Black Geographies and the Politics of Place, edited by Catherine McCurtick and Clyde Woods, there's an essay by Sonia Stanley Nia called Mapping of Black Atlantic Performance Geographies from Slave Ship to Ghetto. And here's a quote from that quote, consistent with certain African beliefs, the game Limbo reflects the whole cycle of life. The players move under a pole that is gradually lowered from chest level, and they emerge on the other side as their heads clear the pole, as in the triumph of life over death. So, again, not they're not explicitly saying it's like the Christian idea of limbo, mm-hmm. but there is this idea of the transition or like that intermediary place in between the waking and the dying mm-hmm. in a lot of these interpretations. <clears throat> And this led me to down a different rabbit hole. Uh, and in many places, I read that Limbo was actually born out of the slave trade. So there is an article I read in the New York Post called Limbo Legend Reveals Dance 
Dance's Slave Era Origin, and it was by Neil Graves. And like I said, it was in the New York Post. It was in 2002. Uh, in this article, Graves spoke to a man named Mike Quashi, who was 73 at the time. Quashi might not be a household name, but he should be. So Quashi was a native of Trinidad and T Tobago, where his father was also a performer. He was known as Left Hand Cornelius, his father. <laughs> uh, and Quashi was one of Cornelius's 28 children. Wild. Damn. Very Left much so. Left Hand Cornelius was busy. He was a busy, busy bee. So Mike Quashi emigrated to the United States first in 1958. He then returned to the United States in 1959. But in between his like kind of stints in the States, he spent a brief time in Jamaica and he worked and studied as a dancer. And he began crafting a limbo act uh, for which he would become most widely known. Uh, he had various stage personas throughout the 60s and 70s, from Limbo Man to early glam rock voodoo fire breather to Calypso singer. But he was known most popularly as the, quote, Limbo Man or King of Limbo. He continued to, like, popularize Limbo within the States, and he appeared frequently at what he referred to as, quote, cafe society events in New York City, referencing Greenwich Village and the nightlife there. Mm -hmm. He perfected his act and was regular, regularly performing at various village and midtown venues, including the Cheetah, the African Room, the Peppermint Lounge, and Cafe Wa. And he claimed that he could... I, I actually watched an interview with him. This was before he died. He was in a nursing home at the time. Um, he claimed that he... His record for, like, doing the limbo was seven inches. The pole was seven inches off the floor. How? I don't understand. How would... I feel like your shins are higher than seven inches. You have to Google, and I'm imploring all of our listeners to as well, videos of, like, competitive limbo people. Seriously. It is yeah, the craziest I thing I've ever seen. I believe that. I'm going to have to look that up after this because I can't... I want to... I need to see how it's done. You got you to gotta watch closely. And remember, no part of the, the, your body aside from your feet can touch the ground. And remember, you're not allowed to turn your head left or right, okay? Mm. I feel like that's the least of your worries if you're at s seven inches. <laughs> how do you get your <laughs> knees under? Right, exactly. Um, but back to Kwashi. So Kwashi was huge. In the New York scene, he was known for being the king of limbo. He performed all over the city. Um, but when he was talking to the New York Post in 2002, he said, quote, The limbo bar was a pole on the ships, meaning the slave ships, to hold the slaves in chains. Their backs touch the ground. When you, as a dancer today, pull out the bar, you can come out, leap up in the air, and smile. But originally, it was a dance of bondage. End quote. Hmm. So when Africans were forcibly sold out of Africa um, and across the Atlantic Ocean, they were totally detached from their own language, communities, and cultures. One of the cultural forms that helped these people to survive was through music. And, like, this was a way that they were able to communicate across barriers. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, music is, you know, gives you the ability to communicate across various language barriers experienced by these enslaved people. The limbo is thought to be a dance that speaks directly to the limited space on the ships where these people were held captive. Uh, and then I found on a website called tntisland.com, this is a quote. It is believed that the people of Trinidad during this dance portrayed going down into the hold of a slave ship, which carried them off into slavery. 
No matter how they twist or turn, squirmed or arched, they would go deeper and deeper. Some would make it. Some would not. The dexterous position had to be retained because the space between the upper deck and floor was narrow, designed for packing and not standing. End quote. Mm. Well, very much so. So with origins in both, like, the slave trade and various religious systems, how did the limbo dance transform into a party game? (laughs) Mm -hmm. How did this happen? So, well, we have Mike Quashie to thank, of course, for bringing limbo to the scene in New York City in the 60s. But we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the queen of limbo herself, a woman named Julia Edwards, who popularized the dance in the 50s. Julia Edwards is also known as the First Lady of Limbo. She is amazing. She was born in 1933 in Port of Spain, Trinidad. In 1947, she began her dancing career at the Bosco Dancing School, which eventually led her to beginning her own dancing group called the the Julia Edwards Dance Group. Her group began performing in several famous hotels and clubs in Trinidad and Tobago. And in 1957, while performing at the Miramar Club in Port of Spain, her group was recruited to perform in the film Fire Down Below. Fire Down Below is an action-adventure film starring Robert Mitchum and Rita Hayworth. And there is a limbo scene. There is a huge, like, important dance number that Rita Hayworth does. And apparently, this, like, hugely popularized, you know, limbo as a dance or as a fad in the States Mm -hmm. in the late 50s, early 60s. So it kind of, like, put it on the map so by 1959 her group was performing at queen's hall queen's hall at the time was a brand new performing arts theater in trinidad Uh, and julia edwards introduced the famous flaming limbo the flaming limbo is where one limbos underneath a stick of fire whether or not like it's low or high you do the whole thing while the the, the thing is flaming it's crazy. You can actually see people do this to this day, either for fun or like if you go to Carnival in like Trinidad. Mm-hmm. So then Edwards and her group appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. Her and her troupe traveled all over the world, United States, Europe, South Africa, Africa, South America, Africa, and Asia, sharing the culture of Trinidad and their rendition of Limbo. In 1972, she stopped dancing regularly with her group, but continued to choreograph up until the early 2000s. Sadly, she died in San Diego, California in 2017. She was 84. Um, And in 2010, a Trinidadian American named Sonia Dumas released a film called Julia and Joyce, which traced the evolution of limbo uh, and the the contribution that Julia Edwards had to its popularity. And the Julia Edwards Dance Company continues to operate and dance the limbo in Trinidad and Tobago to this day, which is cool. So, yeah. Um, I'm going to end with an interesting, just like, I'm not going to about face us, but I'm kind of going to like take us to a different angle here. Okay. I read an article on the Independent Social Research Foundation website called Mid-Century Dance Records and Representations of Identity by Janet Borgerson and Jonathan Schroeder. Uh, And I want to read two quotes from this article as they pertain to America, dance, identity, and limbo. So bear with me. Quote, American history and dance are inextricably intertwined. Christopher Columbus was greeted with dance by indigenous tribes. 
European immigrants introduced their social dance traditions, and African people captured and held as slaves preserved dance practices from their homelands. Multiple influences and mixtures laid foundations for dance in the so-called New World. As rhythms and steps were adapted and adopted, some dances maintained recognizable elements, while others merged and developed into something new entirely. Like limbo, right? Like limbo was Mm -hmm. this really important either religious dance or, you know, a dance representing like the horrible trauma that people experienced by being sold and captured as enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Here's the second quote. Quote, the transformation of the limbo from a Trinidadian ritual concerned with death and rebirth to the next in a long line of U.S. dance fad offers lessons in cultural appropriation. How rituals shake off deeper social significance as they gain in popularity and make the shift from a community-based tradition to a mass media phenomenon, tourist attraction, and dance floor fad. The Limbo story offers reminders of the difficulties in dancing other steps, what gets lost in the quest to move the way others do, and how dances change in the popularization process. Thus, the lyrics of what come what came to be known as the Limbo song that urge listeners to Limbo, Limbo, Limbo like me for my complex and contested demand. End quote. Just yeah. a different angle to look at it. Well, I mean, everyone knows the Limbo. But I had no idea the origins of it. Right, exactly. Um, And these are just things that you we should know, and that's Mm -hmm. why I'm happy to have like this podcast because I feel like I'm constantly learning and growing as a person, and just like trying to be more open and understanding, especially when there's like cultural things that I don't understand. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to? Are you interested in like world records of limbo? Sure. <laughs> now that we're talking about it. Okay. So I'm going to tell you three world records. I'm going to tell you the world record for the men's lowest limbo bar. It is held by a man named Dennis Walston. He successfully attempted a six inch limbo bar in March of 1991. So he holds wow. the men's record. I do not know if anybody will ever beat it. That's probably why it's been held there since 1991. Uh, and then the world record for the lowest female limbo is held by Shamika Charles. At the time, she was 26 years old. She was from Trinidad, but she was living in Buffalo, New York. And in 2010, she did a limbo bar of 8.5 inches above the ground. So wow. nobody has beaten her since. And then Shamika also holds the record for the longest distance limbo, under 12 inches. So she traveled... A distance of 12.67 feet under 12 inches underneath cars. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. Right? Uh, And she did this in 2020 in Trinidad and Tobago in her home country. They must, like, you... Do you have to, like, cross your legs kind of? So you can have your... I can't... Okay. They're completely out. Wow. And the knees are in, the knees are in, like bowed in, and the feet are oh, out. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's so cool and impressive. My knees could never. <laughs> no, right? Like I could never. I would need to take a lot of vitamin D to get these knees ready to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's lumbo for you. Hope I can you see learned why you did today. that as its sole topic. Thank you. Yeah. My topic comes from the Monday New York Times crossword by um, 
Andrea Carla Michaels and Doug Peterson, and it is five down, 1836, site two, quote, remember. The Alamo. This was on my short list of topics this week, Grace. We almost had a, a, a double-decker topic. We almost did. <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about, so. Okay, I'm so glad that you're doing this because one of the reasons why I wanted to do this topic is because I literally have no freaking idea why we need to remember the Alamo. Like, I think there was some kind of war. Well, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I will tell you, and then we'll discuss whether we really do need to remember if we're remembering it the right way, etc. I feel like, so, yeah, there is some layers there we're going to have to yes. unpack. Definitely. So I'm just going to go through the brief, like, this is according to history.com what the Alamo is. All right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So remember the Alamo refers to the Battle of the Alamo during Texas's War for Independence from Mexico. It began on February 23rd, 1836, and it lasted 13 days. All the Texan defenders of the Alamo were killed by Mexican troops. But six weeks later, the opposition leader, Santa Ana, was captured, and the phrase, remember the Alamo, has cemented itself in American mythology, especially Texas history, and is often conflated with American pride, sacrifice, and resistance. Ah, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <clears throat> let's go to the history. Before the Alamo was the fort, what it was, it was a mission, okay? It was located on the banks of San Antonio River. It was built by Spanish settlers in 1718, and it was called the Mission San Antonio de Valero, named for St. Anthony of Padua. The Mission San Antonio de Valero housed missionaries and their Native American converts for about 70 years, until 1793, when Spanish authorities secularized the five missions located in San Antonio and distributed their lands among local residents. So basically, Spain was like, okay, we're done converting people and making them all, you know, Spanish and Christian. So that's strike one against the Alamo. <laughs> strike one. Uh, Here we go. Should we keep a count? All right. Yeah, so, so they shut down. Uh, it wasn't working as a mission anymore. And then beginning in the early 1800s, Spanish military troops were stationed in the abandoned chapel of the former mission. And because it stood in a grove of cottonwood trees, the soldiers called their new fort El Alamo, El Alamo after the Spanish word for cottonwood, and it's also in honor of Alamo de Paras, which was their hometown in Mexico. So that's where it gets its name. So then it okay. became a fort, and multiple military troops kind of used it over the years, like during Mexico's War for Independence um, in the 1820s, including like Spanish troops and rebel troops and Mexican troops. So a bunch of different people used it. In the summer of 1821, the Spanish government let a couple of U.S. families settle in Texas. Okay, because at this point, the, U- the Texas was part of Mexico, which was owned by Spain. Mm-hmm. So the Spanish government was like, yeah, you can go settle there to some U.S. citizens. So over time, there was like a huge migration of U.S. citizens into Texas, and it eventually erupted into this armed conflict in the 1830s. So okay. they were all of a sudden like, no, wait, Texas is ours. Even though mm-hmm. you let us come here first, now it's ours. Mm-hmm. This is vaguely related to the or- origins of rodeo, by the way. Um, if you're interested in rodeo, I talked about rodeo. I don't know what episode it is off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. yes, yes. Yeah. This all happened in Texas right around mm-hmm. the same time. Um, so in December 1835, Texas was in the early stages of a war for independence from Mexico. So a group of Texans, or Texians, as they were called, uh, Texian volunteers led by George Collinsworth and Benjamin Millam overwhelmed the Mexican garrison at the Alamo and captured the fort, seizing control of San Antonio. So now we have Texians who want to get independence from Mexico. They have the fort now. Okay. 
By mid-February 1836, Colonel James Bowie and Lieutenant Colonel William B. Travis had taken command of Texan forces in San Antonio, and they're like the big players, Bowie and Travis. Sam Houston, who you may recognize his last name, (laughs) um, he was the commander-in-chief of Texan forces, and he kept saying, like, San Antonio, the Alamo Fort should be abandoned because there's not enough troops out there, and, like, we can't... Uh, We won't be able to keep it. But Bowie and Travis dug in their heels and they were like, no, we're prepared to defend this fort, even if it kills us. Um, So these defenders, uh, they had a couple reinforcements come in, but they only had like 200 people total, one of which included Davy Crockett. Right. Who is the famous frontiersman and former congressman from Tennessee who arrived in early February. And he's like another you know, player in American folklore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He did exist, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So on February 23rd, a Mexican force of about 1,800 to 6,000 men commanded by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana began a siege of the fort. The Texans held out for 13 days. But on the morning of March 6th, Mexican forces broke through a breach in the outer wall of the courtyard and overpowered them. Santa Ana ordered his men to take no prisoners and only a small handful of the Texans were spared. One of these was Susanna Dickinson, the wife of a captain who had been killed, and her infant daughter, Angelina. Santa Ana sent them to Houston's camp with a warning that a similar fate awaited the rest of Texas if they continued their revolt. So the Mexican forces also did suffer pretty big casualties in the battle. They lost between 600 and 16,000 men. So that's a lot considering there are only like 200 Texians there. Mm -hmm. Um, So from March to May, Mexican forces once again occupied the Alamo. But for the Texans, the Battle of the Alamo became a symbol of their heroic resistance and a rallying cry in their struggle for independence. So on April 21st, 1836, Sam Houston and 800 Texans defeated Santa Ana's Mexican force of 1,500 men at San Jacinto, which is present-day Houston, shouting, remember the Alamo, as they attacked. That was only like six weeks later or so. Mm Mm-hmm. According to History.com, this victory ensured the success of Texas independence. Santa Ana, who had been taken prisoner, came to terms with Houston to end the war. And then in May, Mexican troops in San Antonio were ordered to withdraw. So Texas got its independence from Mexico. Independence from Mexico. So what happened to the fort? In 1845, the U.S. annexed Texas. And for many years afterwards, the U.S. Army quartered troops and stored supplies at the Alamo. It remained a symbol of courage, and in the Me- Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848, U.S. soldiers revived the Remember the Alamo battle cry while fighting against Mexican forces. The Alamo has been comm- commemorated on everything from postage stamps, which we also did a uh, mm-hmm. topic on, to the 1960 film The Alamo, starring John Wayne as Davy Crockett. Of course. <laughs> In 1883, the state of Texas purchased the Alamo, later acquiring property rights to all the surrounding grounds. The Daughters of the Republic of Texas, which is a woman's organization including descendants of the earliest Texan residents, I want to add in here, colonizers, Mm -hmm. um, not the earliest Texan residents, Mm -hmm. they have managed the Alamo since 1905. Today, more than 2.5 million people a year visit the Alamo. Hmm. So, that's what's on history.com. And that is essentially what's, like, taught in general, well, with a little more stuff to children. So in, you know, states, I don't know if all states have this, but most states, like, in fourth grade, you have to teach state history. Mm -hmm. So in Texas, this is taught a lot in fourth grade, and they talk about that um, a lot. It's, like, one of their main, you know, it's kind of like the birth of Texas, it's considered. 
Right, of course. So I read an article on time.com called We've Been Telling the Alamo Story Wrong for Nearly 200 Years. Now it's time to correct the record by Brian Burrow (laughs) and Jason Stanford. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about what they have to say about this. Okay. So like I was saying, the story of the Alamo has become American mythology in a way, but there are multiple facts that are taught about the battle that have since been proven wrong. So, for example, there is a story that William Travis drew a line in the sand and said all who, are, who were willing to fight to cross the line, or all who are willing to fight to the death, cross this line, and everyone in attendance crossed the line. I believe that's also in the movie with John Wayne. However, the story was made up in Anna Pennybacker's book, A New History for Texas Schools. If you look at that story, the footnote um, instead of like providing an actual source, simply says, quote, some unknown author has written the following imaginary speech of Travis. So they don't think that that ever happened. Okay. There's also no evidence that Davy Crockett went down fighting, as depicted famously by John Wayne in his 1960 <laughs> Alamo. There's plenty of testimony from Mexican soldiers that Crockett surrendered and was executed. Okay. The article claims that um, Travis ignored multiple warnings of Santa Ana's approach and was simply trapped in the Alamo when the Mexican army arrived. This is a quote from the article, quote, the men at the Alamo fought and died because they had no choice. Even the notion that they fought to the last man turns out to be untrue. Mexican accounts make clear that as the battle was being lost, as many as half the Texian defenders fled the mission and were run down and killed by Mexican lancers. Mm. Um, This article also talks about how uh, Travis and whatever the other guy's name is. (laughs) We love American history on this podcast. (laughs) We do. That they were like, you know, kind of green. They had never seen battle before and they kind of just got in way over their heads and they, you know, they called for replacements, but their replacements were too far. They, They were set up to come, but they couldn't get there in time. And it was just like, it wasn't this heroic thing. It was kind of just like they didn't know what they were getting themselves into. Sure. Um, Another article I read on Guernica.com called The Alamo is a Rupture by Rebel Ramos is really good. I'm probably going to like link it in the details of this episode because it goes into a lot that I can't get into now, but you should definitely read it. It's really interesting. But um, Raul points out that something often left out in the description of the Alamo was that many of the so-called taxians were immigrant naturalized Mexicans. Um, The Alamo was also in Mexico. They weren't defending it. They were trying to conquer it. Great. The Texas Revolution is often depicted as an organic uprising without connection to American imperialism expansion into Mexican territory. Yet the Alamo was in Mexico. Its seizure was precisely an act of American expansion. Americans felt entitled to Texas and believed that the Mexican North belonged to the United States, both politically with the Louisiana Purchase and morally through the ethos of manifest destiny. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the biggest things is a lot of the soldiers were Mexican or right. Tejano, which is like uh, Texas Mexican because mm-hmm. Texas was Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying like in Mexico, the battles looked at a lot differently. It's almost like it pitted you know, people against their same people. Right, right. But not only that, the basis of much of the war and Mexican-Texas tensions was slavery and how Texas wanted the right to have slaves. So slavery had been legal in Texas in the early 1800s, but it was being repealed under the new Mexican regime. Mexico abolished slavery in 1829, but granted Texas a special exemption until 1830. 
After 1830, a lot of Texans converted their slaves into indentured servants with life terms as some type of loophole. But Mexico passed a law in 1832 barring indentured servitude contracts from lasting longer than 10 years, which is still fucked up, of course. Right. But this issue sparked multiple revolts and eventually culminated with the Battle of the Alamo. So the American independence and fighting spirit that the Alamo purports to represent is really just fighting for the American right to own slaves. Mm -hmm. That's often left out of the Often overlooked in many narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, Hello. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So why is it important to revise and talk about this for obvious reasons, but especially in Texas schools? So this is from the time.com article. Quote, census data indicates that Latinos are poised to become a majority of the Texas population any near any year now, and for them, the Alamo has long been viewed as a symbol of Anglo oppression. The fact that many Tejanos allied with the Americans and fought and died alongside them at the Alamo has generally been lost to popular history. The Tejanos' key contributions to early Texas were written out of almost all early Anglo-authored histories. For too long, the revolt has been viewed by many as a war fought by all Anglos against all of Mexican descent. This other article that I read that talked about like growing up Mexican in Texas or like Mexican American is that like once everyone learns about the Alamo, all of a sudden you realize that they'll never see you as American. They'll always see you as Mexican. And also it just like lends itself to microaggressions. Like one of the articles I read talked about like a white kid will, you know, like do something mean to a Mexican kid or like punch him on the arm and say, remember the Alamo, you know, like kind of breeds that behavior oh my god yeah um back to the guernica article by raul ramos he talks about how there's a painting called dawn of the alamo that hangs inside the senate chamber of the texas capitol and he says quote william travis can be seen at the center of the mural sized painting as the dark nameless and faceless mexicans swarm the alamo this painting hovers over the chamber that passed the SB4, Texas's Show Me Your Papers law, which empowers law enforcement officers to ask anyone they detain about their immigration status. And then I'm just going to end with how he ended the article because he can put it better than I can, obviously. Quote, given that the mythical Alamo narrative not only survives but thrives in Texas and that the politics of anti-Mexican racism wins elections, I'm pessimistic that ethnic Mexicans will ever be considered Americans. It would require overturning centuries of American self-identity that has ignored its imperialist project. Snap. 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 That's the Alamo. Obviously, I (laughs) I think we should remember the Alamo, but... Um, maybe remember it a little bit differently than how we right. Let's, currently let's, remember it. Let's put our glasses on, folks, and take a look through a different pair of lenses here, okay? Uh, yeah, stripping back American sensationalism is really important when trying to talk about like the complicated history uh, that Americans have with race. Um, and mm-hmm. when you have like a, like a national mythology like that takes something like the Alamo and like glorifies it when you're you're really just like glossing over the fact that like like you said that there was mexican nationals or tejanos fighting with Mm -hmm. anglo people against their own brethren and the fact that the alamo at the time was in mexico this was a literal revolt they were colonizing one of the articles opened with like imagine if the u.s decided to let a bunch of canadians move into alaska 
but then all of a sudden they want to start opening up Tim Hortons and like, you know, doing all their Canadian things, which by the way, I would love, but let's say they want to like, you know, use their own currency, start making all their own rules. And then when we try to tell them like, no, you're in the US, you have to pay US taxes and do these things, they start um, fighting back violently with, you know, and they have an armed uprising. Mm-hmm. We would be kind of mad about that too. Right. I mean, well, I wouldn't because the US sucks, but you know, in a time when people can't like cared about <laughs> No, for sure. Um, yeah. Colonizing is not good. Like, at all. No. Like, ever. And the fact that this entire country was born from American imperialism, and... Well, not to mention, but even before Americans got into it, I mean, the Native Americans who were living there... Oh, yeah. ...got colonized. It's just a whole mess. Right, and like, you know... all the way around. Mexico was colonized by the Spanish. We can't forget that either, but like... yeah. Um, but, uh, the Guernica article, he talks about how a lot of like these Confederate statues and stuff are now being torn down. He's like, but the Alamo, like no one wants to touch that because it's such a huge part of history, especially in Texas. And it also makes a lot of money because a lot of people go to see it. Right. You know, people aren't paying to go see any of these statues. Right. But what are they going to do about the The Alamo? Alamo? I don't think necessarily they have to tear it down because it's not like a pedestal, but I think that they should change the framework that it exists under you know like yeah how it's presented and how it's taught also right but anyways that's obviously above my pay grade of (laughs) what i know about so that's the alma for you that's all i got sorry that's all she's got that's all she wrote well we learned a lot this episode i think we learned quite a lot this episode basically how white americans do whatever the fuck they want yeah um, let's have a little bit more self-awareness moving forward, folks. Um, you're asking too much, honestly. <laughs> I really am, and that's so sad. Um, but other than self-awareness, or pleas for self-awareness, I should say, what other things do we bring to the table, Grace? Well, you can follow us on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> find out. Girls. I don't know <laughs> what the hell kind of poll I'm going to do. Maybe the poll will be how low can you go, and it'll just be... <laughs> The lowest you've gone. But I feel like people don't have that in their back pocket. They don't. Well, I guess you'll have to follow us on Twitter to find out what the heck Grace is going to do for the poll this week. Because it will either be controversial or completely ridiculous. So stay tuned. Um, Or you can just come over to... Oh, what? (laughs) I'll just do something completely unrelated to either topic. That's great. That's great. Um, You could do a Harry Potter poll. That's also controversial. (laughs) Yeah, no thanks. (laughs) We have to workshop this. Stick with us, folks. Come over to Twitter. It's going to be a big surprise. Um, If you like pictures and not polls, come over to Instagram. We post pictures and fun things on our Instagram. We're at the Good Evening Girls there. Uh, Drop us a DM. We'd love to hear from you. Leave us a comment. Uh, Yeah. Or TikTok at the Good Eve Girls. Yes. Oh, and we know we ne- you know what we never do, Grace? We never ask our generous, beautiful, giving listeners oh, right. to stop over to iTunes and rate and review our podcast. Uh, we would really like that. We love to read them. You know, whenever we go and check every couple months and we have a new review and it's like, it's always really nice because you guys are all so nice. It just, it just cements what we do and why we do what we do. And we love hearing from you. We love hearing that you listen to us. Honestly, it strokes our egos, so... Read it every night before bed. But don't say anything weird about, you know, 
like don't make fun of my toes because that'll stick with me then <laughs> why that would they say that <laughs> what if they make fun of us for something like that what if they're like grace sounds like kermit the frog sometimes when she talks and then i'll always think that or like she sounds like she has cotton in her mouth sometimes i really do feel that way i feel like that too but you don't sound like that i don't think our listeners are that are are cruel at all i think they love us i hope you all love us um so yeah basically that's it (laughs) that's all we got all right yeah on that note uh we'll see you guys sorry see you friends and enemies next week Oh, friends and enemies, next week we'll be here and we'll be queer. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.